0: Remember the theme of chapters 8 and 9 is that Christ is the light of the world. He is the lampstand. And what we found in the beginning of chapter 8 was this discourse about the adulterous woman and the attempts to condemn her without proper due process, but also the requirements that witnesses put their hand to cause the harm that they seek to bring to a person right the law of moses requires that the witnesses against a person put their hand to the punishment and so jesus when he is brought this woman he responds by saying okay you know he was without sin through the first stone remember this is the idea of those witnesses who are lawfully able to do this duty those witnesses that are found to be trustworthy witnesses." The rest of the chapter follows out this issue of trustworthy witness. And in the rest of John 8, there's this discussion about Jesus being a true witness. And then we continue into the, this last part of John 8, and there's this issue of they need to believe the witness of Jesus. I'm, I'm worried I said something about the witness of John earlier. I meant Jesus. If I said John, I meant Jesus. So the witness of Jesus is what's being dealt with. And so what we have here is this issue that Jesus is the one who's bringing to them a testimony and they won't hear his testimony as though he's a sinner in the sense of an unreliable witness. And he's saying, if I'm not a reliable witness, convict me of sin. None of you is convicting me of sin. So what's the problem with my witness? And that's what he's emphasizing here. He's continuing on with this issue of what witness should be accepted. So he's bringing testimony to them about their own unbelief. There's some people that started to believe some of what Jesus is saying. They seem to be making a profession that they believe Jesus. And so we get into verse 31, and Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, right? whether they said they believed or whether they believed some things about him, but not necessarily the gospel, or maybe they believe the gospel, but they are still frustrated about these other things that he says. The point is, he seems to be dealing with them as though they've made a profession, and uh, it's not credible. Because what he goes on to do is to challenge them on it and push them to deal with changing their works, which is how you deal with a person who makes profession and then behaves in a manner to contradict the profession. It's funny, people don't like it when you claim to know what's in their heart, but they also don't like it when you engage with the evidence of what's in their heart. And so we live in this age where people go around pretending to have some sort of an intuitive ability to tell if other people are sincere or not, but also find it unacceptable to judge people's behavior. The Bible tells us to do is to reject intuitive nonsense that makes it so that you pretend to have any idea what people's intentions are, but you are required to listen to the words they say and to look at the things they do. And you are obligated to judge people on the basis of what they say and what they do. You cannot read men's hearts, and you do not know whom God has elected from eternity past. You deal with people on the basis of what they say and what they do. Verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The common heretical way of reading this is, Jesus is saying, if you persevere in the faith, then you actually have real faith. Brothers, if you have faith today, you will have it tomorrow. That is a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perseverance is not the thing to be added to faith that makes it saving. Perseverance is a promise that comes with saving faith. Nobody will ever believe the gospel unless the Holy Spirit causes them to. And if the Holy Spirit causes them to, he will not let them go. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. What is he saying? He's dealing with the credibility of testimony. If you are these people who profess Jesus... If they keep coming back, even when he says his hard words, then they are giving evidence that they are indeed his disciples. Now, an alternate way of reading this that is not heretical, but I don't think is what the sense of the text is, is to say, well, all that abide in his word are actually people that believe, and everybody who believes is going to abide. that's, That's not systematically a problem, but I don't think that's what's being talked about in the context. The witness is the context. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So people who keep coming back to hear the word, that word is going to build up in them into the knowledge of the truth, and the truth will make them free. Are you struggling with some sin? Are you struggling with joy? Do you struggle with doubt? Continue to come to the preaching of the Word. Read the Scriptures. Meditate on the Word of God. And those doubts will be torn down like the idols that they are. The falsehoods and the weakness and the sin will be rooted out of you. It will be a Word that comes in like a living water and it will cleanse your soul. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The knowledge of the truth is that which frees you from the dominion of sin. All of your sins are because of errors or ignorance. You believe some lie, or you do not know some truth that you need to know. And so the slavery to sin is removed by the knowledge of the truth. And they answered him We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anybody. How can you say you will be made free? Right? You could see somebody saying, We're Americans. We've never been slaves. We are free men. Our forefathers were Christian men, pilgrims, Puritans. We have never been slaves to anybody. You are not a person who is not a slave to sin because you're American or because you're forefathers or because you have a godly father now. You're going to have the most godly patriarch on the planet, but unless the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind and gives you a saving faith, You are as much a slave to sin and to the devil as anybody else. It is not who your fathers in the flesh are. It is not who has adopted you or made you an heir unless that adoption is by God the Father. Jesus, in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Right? You're a slave of whom you obey. Are you obeying slavery? Are you obeying slavery to sin? Are you a slave to sin? If you sin, you are a slave to sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The house of God is the church. The house of God is the church. The house of God is the church. Now, there are some people that come into the house and they do not believe. They might say they believe. They might have been raised in a grand old house. But anybody who does not actually have a saving faith on the day of judgment... Will be removed. At their death, they will be removed. Though they remain in the visible church all their life, it is not mere church attendance or church membership, it's not baptism or the Lord's Supper that causes a person to be saved on the day of judgment. It is the grace of God which is with certainty known to be yours if you have faith. All who believe, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ are saved and no others. The Shorter Catechism, question 14 says, What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So a failure to do the positive stuff or a performing of the negative stuff. One of the ways that you feel the slavery of sin is when you know there's good stuff you need to do and you just can't get yourself to do it you're like why can't i do this stuff not doing this thing is making me miserable the procrastination the, the doing other stuff that you shouldn't do instead the doing things that are lesser works so t- sometimes our slavery to sin is made obvious to us by the fact that that you can sit there and go, I just need to do this thing, and if I do it, it will relieve me of stress, it will relieve me of this burden, there's something I need to do here, I don't want to do it, and you go and do something else. Right? That, that slavery to sin, to be incapable of doing the thing that needs to be done right then. There's also wicked desires where we do things that are forbidden. We fail to do what we ought to do, and we do things that we ought not to do. This sinfulness, what's. Question 18 of the Shorter Catechism says, Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. Okay? We are guilty because Adam acted as a representative and he sinned as our lawyer. And the judge says. That's your fault. He you go, that doesn't seem very fair. He goes, that's your lawyer. He acted on your behalf. It's your fault. He's God. His rulings have no appeal. So he says, you're guilty because of Adam. What he did. Adam did badly. Shame on you. Secondly, for the very first moment, I'm sorry actually before that we also don't have righteousness of our own we don't have a positive credit there's nothing of our own to earn a standing before god we don't have righteousness that's original we don't start out in a positive place we've lost a standing of righteousness in adam we are guilty because of adam's behavior in addition to that our very first moment of conception we failed to glorify god as we ought we don't believe the truth We don't believe the things we ought to believe. We fail to glorify God as we ought. We don't make him the goal. And so every moment, a failure to make him the highest priority is sin. It's a failure to conform to the standard. Additionally, all that together is called original sin. Additionally, we commit particular sins where we do stuff we ought not to do and we drop the ball. Okay, there's our sinfulness. Now Christ comes and he pays for the guilt of Adam. And God says, Jesus died to pay for your sin. You're innocent. Everybody's real happy with that one. Less happy about you're guilty for what Adam did. Okay, but if you don't believe that you're guilty for what Adam did, you don't understand and you can't accept the legal structure that makes it so that you're innocent because of what Christ did. Furthermore, Christ keeps the whole law, and so God looks at us and he says, Jesus Christ kept the whole law, good job. Didn't feel good when he said bad job for what Adam did. Feels real good when he says good job for what Jesus did. Now, our corrupt nature, that is being solved by the work of the Holy Spirit to change our nature. That change is guaranteed. He gives you saving faith. He's going to keep changing that nature. That change of nature is not the grounds of your righteousness. The grounds of your righteousness is Jesus keeping the law. The basis, the credits that God looks at, is the work of Jesus Christ, not the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's not the work of the Spirit inside of you that's enough. It's not you being morally transformed that's enough. It is the works of Jesus Christ done outside of you that is the basis, the grounds, the credit that is looked to. But we have the problem of guilt dealt with, the guilt of sin. We also have the corruption of sin dealt with by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And that results in particular acts that are good, done in faith. That results in fruit. And the fruit is not faith. The fruit comes from faith. If you mix the fruit with faith, you have made faith into faithfulness. If you mix moral transformation with the credit of the Lord Jesus Christ... You mix sanctification and justification. The distinctions are key. These distinctions are the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel. Now, question nineteen of the shorter catechism says, "What is the misery of the estate wherein to man fell?" All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. That's the relationship with God, enjoying His favorable presence the enjoying of a relationship with God is a fruit, a benefit of faith. It is not faith. It's a benefit obtained by being in righteous standing. It is not something that gets us the righteous standing. The loss of communion with God is a loss in sharing in the knowledge of the truth with Him. In sharing in blessings and benefits. In sharing in His favorable presence. All of that is restored because... We're counted as righteous in Christ, and it's not something that's restored in order that we can be counted as righteous in Christ. The difference is key. Now, all mankind is under the wrath of God in the sense that we deserve his hatred. Wrath means hatred, curse means harm. We're under his wrath and curse. God's attitudes don't change. So he doesn't go from hating a person to loving a person. The changing is in the outward. The changing is in the legal. The changing is not in God's mind. So we all deserve his wrath, and everyone receives his curse because of the just deserts. But Christ takes the curse so that we are not going to receive the wrath of God. And so we're made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. The miseries of this life. This is an understatement type of phrase. Okay, death. Death is scary because you're afraid of judgment. Atheists have done a very good job of pointing out how not thinking anymore is not particularly scary. Just an end to consciousness, not particularly scary. It's not, actually. I mean, right, the idea of sticking around forever kind of scary. I remember as a little boy sitting on my bed being afraid of the idea of infinity. Woke my dad up at night, occasionally. Yeah, I was thinking about infinity again. He's like, son, go to sleep. So this idea of thinking about going on forever, if that's not a joyous condition, that's terrifying. Going on forever without it being a joyous condition is terrifying. The miseries of this life include meaninglessness, boredom, guilt. The idea of, of chasing after stuff and having it become less and less fulfilling. The mystery of things go away and so everything becomes boring and old. That idea, the miseries of this life, Without God, without infinite meaning to pursue, without an increasing knowledge of God to chase down things and to have increasing wonder and to see how things fit together so the system becomes more and more glorious, the miseries of this life are terrifying. And even if you did not have external suffering imposed by God as a tormentor in hell, which He is, it would still be horrifying to go forever without the knowledge of God. We are saved from this misery and we are saved from the slavery to sin by the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth opens our eyes and makes us see the invisible world. It makes us see the things that are hidden from the eyes of men. It makes us to see things so that things have meaning and wonder so that we know that there are purposes to pursue and goals so we care about other people that we care about the glory of God that we see the ways in which that brings joy that there is a distinction in the experience that you have in this life even By the knowledge of the truth and how it makes the miseries of this life to be light, to have the death itself, to have its sting removed and to have the pains of hell be taken away from us. Disillusionment with sin sets in and we start to cry out to God to free us from it. The outward and ordinary means of grace are the means of being freed. They're the means of sanctification. So the word of God the sacraments prayer and all the ordinances that god gives to us those are things that when we have faith and they are used they start to cleanse away the wicked desires filthy affections and they start to transform us and they free us they take away the chains the shackles of sin they make it so that we are able to run with strength verse 37 I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Jesus is a true prophet. He is the prophet. He is the greatest prophet to have ever spoken. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. You come from him by the flesh, you are his sons in terms of an inheritance, in terms of the law order of the world but you seek to kill me. You are not his spiritual children. You have rejected a true prophet because you've rejected his word. The word of Jesus has no place in you. When someone rejects the truth, it is a revealing of their inward being unlike anything else. There are no things so clear to men as words. There is nothing you can do to make thoughts plain to people better than to speak words. And so when people plainly reject with their words the words of truth, they are making things clear. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The seeking to kill is action that comes out of the beliefs. Actions are less clear than words, and yet when actions are plain in terms of opposition to truth, those actions become, when they're plain, more powerful evidence than the words. Right? Somebody can say, I love you, while trying to kill you, and you would not believe the words, and you would believe the actions. Now, Somebody might be trying to kill you because they think that you're somebody else. Right? You, somebody breaks into your house, you have a tendency to think that they're a person who's there to harm you. You do some violence against them to defend yourself, and then you realize it was not the person that you thought was there. It was not the person that you thought was a danger. Instead, it was somebody who had a right to be there, breaking in because they locked themselves out. That could be a confusion point. Your attacking of them would not be a statement that you hate them. It would be a confusion. But when it's clear what somebody is doing, what somebody is saying, who somebody is... Actions can become clear too. And so in Jesus' case, he's made himself plain who he is. He has spoken his words with plainness. And these people are Abraham's descendants, but they're not his spiritual children. They're seeking to kill a true prophet without justification. Verse 38, I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So these words are what Jesus has seen with his father. And these actions are a result of what is seen with their father. So Jesus' father is God the father. Who's their father? Well, he tells us it's Satan. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. They want to persecute him for the doctrine that he is preaching. Their desire to persecute him for the doctrine that he is preaching is something that evidences the fact that their father is not God. Their father is Satan. Satan. If you were Abraham's children, if, you're, if you were the God the Father's children in spirit, you would do the works of Abraham. It's funny, works aren't a part of faith, but they do give evidence to the profession of faith. They do give evidence to the profession of faith. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. That would be supporting the message of Jesus Christ and it would be not persecuting a true prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's Jesus Christ. So actually, it's just Jesus Christ. And in fact, whenever you act to speak the truth, you're acting on Jesus' behalf. You know that? And when somebody persecutes somebody who is speaking the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know they're persecuting? Who does Jesus say Paul is persecuting? Paul, why do you persecute me? That's what Jesus says to Paul. So persecuting those who speak the truth on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, is opposition to Jesus Christ. Verse 40, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Abraham didn't persecute true prophets. You do the deeds of your father. So the natural or adoptive descendants of Abraham are being contrasted with the spiritual children of Abraham. These men are from the body of Abraham. They are in the line legally. They are fellow churchmen in the visible church. Guys, this is the only visible church on the planet. This is the only visible church on the planet. And Jesus is being persecuted by the only visible church on the planet. The thing that makes you a child of Abraham is sharing an intellectual union of faith in the saving knowledge. That gives you a legal union with Christ so that Christ's actions are on your behalf and in your place. The spiritual children of Abraham share his faith and faith causes works. Faith causes works. Faith is faith apart from works. And good works cannot be good works without faith. The only way to know if a work is a good work is to know first that you have faith. You can't do any good works apart from faith. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. So if you have to look at works to see if you've got faith, well, first you have to determine if you have faith to know if you have a good work. So it's not going to help. You mess up the order. Your own assurance is not even based on works. The only thing that's based on works is the other person judging your profession. Your justification is by faith alone. Your assurance is by knowing that your faith is what's taught in the scriptures. And the way that somebody else accepts your profession is by looking at your works. That is the role of works It's also the good life, and when you fail to do works, you will be miserable. When you chase sin, you will be miserable. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. This makes sense in the context of discussing which witness is to be believed. He's talking about the reliability of his witness. He's the lampstand. He's the light. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. They're asserting their legitimacy. Legitimacy is not the question. Being a son from the body of Abraham and a son from lawful marriage descending from Abraham are not sufficient separately or together to be a spiritual son of Abraham. Saving faith in the doctrine is what is necessary to be a son of Abraham. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Okay, the love of Christ. Love is generally in the Bible defined as obedience to the law. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what we're told. The law, not the gospel, is summarized in love, God, love, neighbor. There is a way that you can make faith and love synonymous. Jonathan Edwards does it in the beginning to the religious affections. I'm hoping that this explanation sounds familiar. Okay? If love is merely defined as what you value in your heart then obviously when you believe that God is God, by definition, you think He's the good. And the good, the highest value thing, by definition is the thing that you value the most or you see as most valuable. So in the sense that saving faith includes seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as valuable above all else, sure, saving faith is love. But unless somebody explains it that clearly to you, that clearly... Be worried when someone says faith is love. Love is generally the law. It's your obligation to keep the commandments, to seek the glory of God by keeping the commandments. We are still talking about this idea that the reason it's obvious to Jesus in his human nature that these men are not saved is because they don't love him. And guess what? Works are for a credible profession of faith. And their testimony should not be believed, but Jesus' should. That's the subject. For I proceeded forth and came from God. You should love me. I'm a true prophet. I came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. They don't understand him because they're not able to listen. What does that mean? Does that mean they're physically deaf? They seem to be hearing him. They seem to be responding to words he's saying. They're quite offended about assertions that they are not the true sons of Abraham. They seem to be hearing it with the auditory nerve. And it's hitting another nerve. The issue is not their inability to hear the physical words. The problem is they are dark in their hearts and they do not understand and do not believe. They understand some things he's saying, But they don't understand all of it, and they don't believe him. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Most of Jesus' conflicts are with churchmen who pretend to be defending orthodoxy, and they persecute him on the grounds of defending orthodoxy. The fathers, the fathers, the fathers... The elders, the elders, the elders. The tradition of our elders says this. And you are asserting these doctrines that are contrary. It happens with the Sabbath, where Jesus teaches the true doctrine of the Sabbath. It happens with his claim to be a prophet. It happens with his claim to be the Son of God. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Why do people not stand in the truth? Why do people not behave in a manner that supports the truth? Because there's not truth in them. Because there's not truth in them. When we speak a lie, sorry, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. We have, as human beings, no ability to know or speak the truth of our own resources. We are naturally sons of Belial. We are naturally sons of Satan. And it is only when our nature is changed by the work of the Holy Spirit, that we have any resources to be able to speak the truth. When the Holy Spirit gives us faith, He is changing us so that now we have truth within us and we might speak the truth. The desire to murder Christ physically is also the desire to murder souls. The persecution of teachers of the truth is a desire to murder them and it is a desire to to murder souls false teachers desire to fleece the sheep false teachers desire to fleece the sheep you do not just go up to people and assume they're false teachers and assume that they want to fleece the sheep but when people give evidence that they are false teachers then you know they want to fleece the sheep When Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Notice the object of what saving faith is, is truth. And people who have no truth in them don't believe the truth. Truth. Not emotion, not experience, not relationship, not feeling. Is the object of faith. Jesus Christ is the truth. He is the object of faith. The word of God is the truth. It is the object of faith. If you believe the truth, you believe the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe the word of God. You believe the gospel. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. He's saying, because I'm a righteous witness, because I'm a truth-telling witness, because I'm the light, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Do you see how that relates back to you who are without sin throw the first stone? This is about which of you shows that I'm not a good witness. That's what this is about. And people he was combating against They wouldn't keep the law, but they were trying to trap him about the law. And then when he says, Okay, you who are without sin, throw the first stone, none of them do. And then he says, You don't believe me because I tell the truth. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Look at the couching of that. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? I'm a reliable witness. Why don't you believe me? You don't have a reason to say I'm not a reliable witness. I tell you the truth. Why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Okay? I want you to look at verse 47 like you're trying to burn lasers through the page. He who is of God hears God's words. He who is of God hears God's words therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. The word therefore indicates causal relationship. If you're of God, you hear God's words. Because you do not hear, sorry, because you're not of God, you do not hear. Because you're not of God. Look at the repetition there. Look at the emphasis. This is Calvinism. Not only is this Calvinism, but it's also indicative of the fact that, guys, we don't take heresy seriously enough. We don't take false doctrines seriously enough. We look at other sins and we think they're very serious. Pastors who commit adultery get that guy out of the pulpit. Yes, yes, amen, hallelujah, yes. But you know what's worse? You know what's worse? Do You know what's worse? Preaching another gospel. You can be a hypocrite and preach the true gospel and lots of souls can be saved. You can be very sincere about a false gospel and preach it and lots of souls can go to hell. I would rather sit under the preaching of an adulterer giving me the true gospel than to sit under the preaching of somebody who's very faithful as a husband and preaches a false gospel. Should you have either? No. Kick them both out. Make them repent. But if you had to choose, it's obvious Should we allow either? No. No. But we don't get that doctrine is the principal thing. Therefore, get doctrine. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Therefore, I proceed forth and came from God nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus presents the truth here, shows them the rules of testimony, shows them that they are not good witnesses, shows them by the fact that they weren't willing to do the thing they said they witnessed. They weren't willing to punish the woman when they said they were witnesses. They showed themselves to be hypocrites. And then he tells them the truth and they reject his truth and he says it's because you don't have the truth in you. And then they answer him and say, you're a Samaritan and you're a demon. You have a demon. Sorry. You're a Samaritan you have a demon. What's a Samaritan? A Samaritan would be a heterodox person. A Samaritan would be somebody who had rejected the Mosaic religion. Who had Some of the outward forms and claimed to be worshiping the same God, but was really just somebody who had adopted a false religion, false worship, and false doctrine. Accepted some false prophets. So you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. So in other words, this is the doctrine of demons. This is a false doctrine. This is heresy. And you are not a part of the true church. So this is an effort to discredit. This is a move from what he's teaching to who he is. Jesus answered, and this is, by the way, you are going to watch me for decades if the Lord doesn't kill me. Tell people things about doctrine, have them reject it, and then not be willing to argue or meet, and to instead try to say things like, You're not orthodox, you're not reformed, this is false doctrine and you have no credibility but no meeting to talk. Okay, that's what you will see. And so, if that is the case, that happens all the time. There's a discrediting, you don't want to platform, you don't want to give people the ability to talk about the things. The goal is to use the prestige of a position to push somebody down. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. This idea of keeping the word. Is keeping the word here keeping the law, or is keeping the word here believing the word? And he's not contradicting his other teachings, like from John 3. It says that if you believe, you're not condemned. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you said, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? You see, they don't understand him here. He's talking not about physical death, but about spiritual death. Abraham's not dead. Abraham's alive. He is in the presence of God, enjoying God. The prophets aren't dead. They're alive in the presence of God, enjoying God. They're awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. They're physically dead, but they're not spiritually dead. So they're saying, who do you think you are? They never died, or they died. How can you say you'll never taste death, you'll never see death? Well, it's in the sense that you'll never have spiritual death. Do you make yourself who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. Okay, so as a human being, Jesus Christ does not seek his own glory. He's seeking the glory of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. Now, in his divinity, he does seek his own glory. It is my Father who honors me. So here now the Father is glorifying. God the Son, in His human nature and His divine nature, of whom you say that He is our God. Yet you have not known Him, but I know Him. Okay, these people, they claim to know the Father, they don't know Him. Jesus is saying they don't know Him, but Jesus knows Him. If I say, I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Okay, this, what's the point of verse... 55. If I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. When you are pushing a doctrinal point from the Bible and there's pressure to drop it, if you retreat from it, you have retreated from defending the truth at the point of controversy and you become a liar. You are not allowed to drop the truth. If I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus is not saying that Abraham saw with his physical eyes the day of the coming of the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that by faith Abraham saw it. Verse 57, Then the Jews said to him, You're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus doesn't go back to correct their failure to follow what he's saying. He doubles down on the controversy and says, I am God. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by he shows by the intensification of the conflict who does not have the truth in them that is what he does comments questions objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights